Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted, and welcome back to Spaßbremse. Yes, willkommen zurück. We are talking energy today, uh, more specifically how Germany is reacting to the price increases that began even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but have since then obviously accelerated. Um, we're going to go over oil and gas today. Two, two, two of my... Two of my top favorite fossil fuels, I'd say. They're they're up there. It's like I like coal's pretty nice, but oil and gas, you know, I mean where would we be without our Heizung? Well, I just learned about something called mineral oil, which is like just in everything and a proven carcinogen and I think that might be my favorite. I don't know if it totally qualifies as a fossil fuel, but Okay. Well subscribe to our Since Patreon for our bonus, other, our, bonus, uh, our bonus fossil fuel ranking episode. <laughs> no. Um, but we will be talking to returning guest, uh, transportation researcher Giulio Mattioli later in the episode about these price increases, um, specifically in the transportation sector, which is his area of expertise, um, including, of course, the repeated calls for a cap on the price of gasoline for cars. I guess first, let's talk about natural gas the stuff you heat your house with. We're Americans, so we call the stuff you put in your car gas. But we'll try and say petrol or, it, it or benzene. It doesn't roll off the tongue for me. Benzene is not It really enough. doesn't. I, I just kind of struggled through that. Petrol. Or benzene, for clarity. Sprit is the German slang, which I find a yeah, a which is what you'll hear. Term, the sprit, unfortunately, <laughs> the sprit price bremse, the the break on the price of benzene for your car. So that's what a lot of the, the conservative politicians are talking about, and Julio um, and I get into all those details. But yeah, it's obviously it's not just it's not just the um, the issue with filling up your tank that people are getting concerned about. There also obviously domestic heating costs are a big issue, even though people feel them. Slightly less acutely, I think, because you get your bill at the end of the month or you submit your meter readings only like every six months. So people don't know, you know, you don't see like the really intimidating price necessarily. It's just a delayed anger. Yeah. It's not you don't, really you, you don't drive up. You don't drive up to, to fill up your tank and be like, oh, my God, you know, it's gone up so much. But people still um, still definitely get hit by this, especially at the, the low end of the income sector, because a lot of people don't have cars. But pretty much everybody does need to heat their house. Except for the true, um, you know, the true, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. true the true people standing up to, to Putin's aggression. Like Germans all now basically have like a, a little polling device in their house. You know, you have your radiator and it goes from, it goes from zero to five. And so you can like, uh, it's basically like express your satisfaction with Vladimir Putin's leadership on a scale of uh, zero to five and five cranking up that heat. You're just like, I love Putin. And if you're, if Ted's, you're, Ted's turning his hand if, if in you're, a, in if a... <laughs> you're, I'm, I'm turning it the other way to zero because, uh, I am not a Putin apologist. Um, I, I will, uh, yes, you can, you can demonstrate, uh, you can demonstrate that you stand up for freedom and democracy by, um, having your radiator on zero, which is a thing I've unironically seen some people say. Um, we obviously do not advocate, uh, fossil fuel usage, but also don't advocate unnecessarily freezing yourself for dubious political ends. <laughs> yeah they really they really love that they love what are what, what's uh, your what's your radiator at michelle i mean what are you uh like i have, I have a thermostat in my place in the uk so like i'm, I'm sort of like i i'm kind of insulated from the you know the like it, the decision about like how how much do i want to like have this gas going right now i have to like do it more indirectly but like you get to experience it directly what are you at right um right now i actually am at zero <laughs> See, a true, a true patriot. Don't, don't be disappointed in me, but um, I no, was just we, lifted. No, we stand up so. for freedom on this podcast. Um, and, uh, but no, be... I'm usually at like a 
to. Volodymyr Zelensky will be visiting you personally to give you a Hero of Ukraine medal for uh, keeping your room cold. <laughs> so yeah, natural gas. Um, the reason we're saying this somewhat in jest, um, obviously it is very, it is very serious. Um, and the German dependence on Russian natural gas is a big, uh, I think like the environmental, political, and um, as we're seeing now, moral problem. And so, you know, Germany is is highly dependent on Russian energy imports um, and prices are spiking in that sector, which has a, a weird outcome because a large percentage of Russia's national budget comes from fossil fuel exports. And as the prices have been surging, the actual value of the currency flowing into Russia has been increasing. So we're in this sort of perverse situation where the crisis that Russia has created, which contributed to rising oil and gas prices, then ends up padding Russian state coffers. Um, there have obviously been these massive Western sanctions on Russia that we discussed a couple of weeks ago with Dominic Loisda. Uh, but with carve-outs for energy exports and high energy prices, some of the worst impact on Russia is mitigated because they're still getting the money coming in as their gas and oil is flowing out. And so they actually have a... You could a, say they're insulated. Yeah, you could. Potentially, until, unless unless we cut it off, and so that that's the debate that that Germany is having, right? Is well, we want to keep our industry running and our houses warm, but we know that we're directly supplying money to a regime that just started an aggressive war against its neighbor, and is you know bombing civilians and and countless other horrors that they're doing, and so we're by kind of keeping our economy going with Russian gas, we're pretty much directly subsidizing something we find appalling. And so Germany is in this like very difficult position and they're trying to figure out a way to get off of Russian gas. And what we want to talk about is if that is even possible, because for example, you have Russia's current account surplus, you know, the difference in the value between what they export and import and was actually at a record in February 2022. So they're, they're getting a lot of cash flowing in. Um, and how do we stop that? Uh, what's Germany going to do about it? They've put themselves in this bind by being very dependent on Russian gas and now realizing that this is a bit of a problem and sort of scrambling for what to do. So we've got, uh, we've got one Robert Habeck of the, the Green Party who's supposed to be in charge of this stuff for his energy and climate ministry. What's he been saying? Yeah, um, he told the public broadcaster ARD this past week that, quote, if we flip a switch immediately, there will be supply shortages, even supply stops in Germany. And yeah, he basically predicted mass unemployment, poverty, people who can't heat their homes, people who run out of petrol if his country stopped using Russian oil and gas. Yeah, so he, he um, went he went a bit for like the, the Mad Max scenario, like everybody is just uh everybody's going wild. Um it's unclear how accurate that is and we'll get into some of the actual economic descriptions of this. Um Habeck has uh he's been kind of he's been kinda of all over the place on the rhetoric. Um, for example, he said the other day, I think just uh, on the would have been the eighteenth, um he said about Putin's power. So he gave this one, this sort of uh, very cautious talk that, that Michelle quoted, you know, setting this mass unemployment and poverty and people running out of fuel. And then I think he, he took some heat for that um, and that not seeming very scientifically grounded. And then he just said the other day, quote, we should do everything we can to reduce Putin's power and in the end destroy it. He still resisted calls for an immediate stop to Russian energy imports, but added, when we can say with oil and gas that we've secured supply chains, then we'll take the next step. Um, so he's sort of calling for regime change, which is a bit of a risky move. Um, and also sort of adding that, um, okay, we're, we're securing these supply chains where we're trying to get off of it. So you can kind of see his thinking evolving on this issue. And speaking of securing supply chains, Habeck is apparently going to Qatar now to try to get new sources of gas imports. Uh, obviously, they're not engaged in a in a conflict of the scale that Russia is in Ukraine, but um, obviously not a a human rights all star there. So it's a 
it shows you that these decisions of where you're getting fossil fuels from are um are pretty bleak usually and you're you're usually not uh there's no clear like moral winner there which ties into what we talked about on previous episodes and it's a bit unfortunate is that the greens for all their rhetoric have been you know very uh pro shutting down things like nuclear power plants and you know under merkel the the cdu sort of strangled german investment so they weren't able to transition to a green economy very quickly and so you have this problem where germany is basically stuck getting fossil fuel imports from a series of different unsavory sources and the previous speculation that some of the nuclear power plants would stay online i think has been said to be not true so they they will not be rebooting any of the nuclear power plants that were supposed to be shutting down which has been a big issue for the greens for a long time they were very in favor of shutting those down but it puts germany in a position where they have to you know switch out russian for qatari gas imports which i, I said is maybe a slight upgrade on the the human rights front but but not exactly not exactly stellar um, and this comes in addition to they've proposed two um, called LNG liquefied natural gas terminals that they're proposing to build primarily, I believe, for American imports of that. Um, but that takes about five years. So they're, they're kind of struggling. They don't they don't know exactly what to do. Um, and it seems like people are scrambling a bit because it does it does feel very like morally compromised to, to oppose this invasion in the strongest possible terms. And then basically keep financing it by what you need to keep your economy running. And so that's the position Germany's in now, and they're trying to find a way to resolve it. So like just on a numbers level, why is it such an issue? So overall, oil accounts for 32% of German energy input. Um, one third of that comes from Russia. This is from Adam Tews. Um, and gas accounts for 27% of Germany's primary energy input of which 55% comes from Russia, 26% of the coal comes from Russia. All told, this means that about 30% of Germany's primary energy input comes from Russia. So not a great position to leave yourself in uh, on Germany's part uh, for the last several decades, just sort of getting actually more and more dependent on a lot of these Russian energy sources. Uh, a whole 30% of their primary energy now comes from a country that just invaded its neighbor. And so they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. And they keep talking about like the medium term, right? Because obviously you can't, you, you can not only flip off the switch, but you can't like build these terminals or build the infrastructure instantly. It's like, it's, this is going to be a problem yeah. that extends. The goal is almost like, it's almost like, oh, well, it's spring, so we're not going to need as much oil for a while. And, like, by next yeah, winter, we, can, ho that, we like, can hopefully, <laughs> yeah, we can hopefully, like, wean ourselves off. Yeah, it's like general winter meat, uh, field marshal fruiting, yeah. Like, okay, so you have maybe, what, seven, eight months before you have to start heating again? What is that? That's short term. Like, there's nothing they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, some of the other estimates time. are like 2027 20, to wean themselves up. It, it it feels a bit, I mean, it is, it is like a lot of it is, is too little, too late. And like the dependence that Europe has on Russian gas definitely played into the calculus that, that they could have not, wouldn't say a free hand in Ukraine, but, but more range of motion than they would have if there weren't these imbalances. And so, I mean, I, I, I support obviously a lot of these efforts to, get Germany off of Russian gas, um, both from a, a moral and a climate standpoint. It does feel a bit bizarre when we're still talking about like taking these nuclear power plants offline and then replacing all of this with, you know, uh, imports from Middle Eastern countries who are just abysmal human rights records themselves. Um, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a huge upgrade to me. And but, you know, I, I get that it's, it's a short term thing that they're all all trying to extinguish this one crisis. But yeah, like you said, it's uh, it's not it's not exactly doing enough. And so one of the issues here, right, is for natural gas especially, is this term you'll hear a lot, which is fungibility. Natural gas, the original NFT. It's it's difficult to find. There you go. Yeah. I was like, what is <laughs> because what it NFT takes a lot joke of, are we gonna make here? <laughs> 
because it takes a lot of infrastructure as opposed to like uh, petrol for your car. Like, you know, you can just have a, a can of gas to, to fill up your car. Not, not that difficult. Um, and you can scale that up um, on, a, on a much larger level. But obviously with natural gas, I mean, it's a it's a literal gas. So it comes in and it comes in the pipeline. That's why these pipelines are such a big deal with, you know, Nord Stream 1 still running, but Nord Stream 2 being canceled and because it's really just piping this this gas that you, you know use for your stove or use to heat your house um and you can't just you can't just kind of like load that in a barrel and, and then reroute the ship where it's going like there are these established lines of infrastructure so that's one of the reasons it's, it's very hard to to get off of this and you know like i said there is this uh, liquefied natural gas coming a lot from the united states but that takes uh, a lot of processes to get that into liquid form as well as the infrastructure and the terminals to actually import it to Germany. And so it's not something that can happen overnight. So Germany, actually, I mean, I think, I think to its credit, uh, often everyone's saying, you know, okay, Germany is so risk averse. They're not, um, you know, they're not taking any steps. Uh, they're not taking bold enough action. And they, they've definitely done a reversal on a few fronts after the invasion. And so there actually is a very vigorous debate here about what they're going to do and what the impact of just a full cutoff of Russian energy imports would be. And so basically it looks like the people predicting a total catastrophe could be a bit silly. There's some people have called it, it'll be an incalculable loss or, you know, you have Habeck kind of catastrophizing uh, about, you know, everybody running out and, and everything um, freezing, whatever. Um, that doesn't look like what most of the experts are saying. Goldman Sachs predicts a 3.5% GDP contraction if they cut off Russian energy imports. Uh, some economists affiliated with the SPD and the unions say about four to five. Another group of economists who used uh, this advanced trade model to try to predict it um, said uh, less than that. The consensus here is that it's not really like a doomsday, according to most rational estimates. Of course, that doesn't take into account the distributional aspects, like a, a 3.5 reduction in GDP obviously doesn't mean like everyone in Germany takes a 3.5% pay cut and then says, okay, you know, call it a day. Um, certain sectors are hit. Some people are going to lose their jobs. Uh, and the ones who don't lose their jobs still might be hit by extremely high heating bills, increasing the, the sort of distributionally unequal burden of cutting off Russian fossil fuels. It doesn't look like the cost would be so much that the state basically couldn't make those people whole and just compensate them for the additional cost. But the compensating mechanisms need to be in place to actually make sure that we're not just asking the, the worst off in German society to bear the burden of trying to get Russian energy out of Germany. And yeah, so, I mean, yeah, something that they kind of floated was like oh well we'll do another zuschlag like you know if you get kind of um some of these leistungen if you're getting if you're getting help from the government for paying for your home or paying for your heating which there are like if you're on public assistance then you get further assistance for this yeah and they kind of they kind of said uh or at least I don't know if this was Berlin wider at the, no, it was, it was definitely the Ampel was like, oh, well, we'll just like throw these people 50 more euros a month for a householder, yeah. like 35, like some like measly amount. And you're like, yeah, that'll, that'll fix it when a third of your, uh, <laughs> sourced heating is, uh, yeah, exactly. And so this is, and this is this issue that we also get into, um, when we discuss with, with Julio, like, you know, for example, uh, if you have, you know, similar increases in the cost of heating your house and, and running your car, obviously, um, you know, even if they're the same percentage increase, the actual effect on in terms of, in terms of equality in society is going to be very different here because a lot of low income people don't have cars, even though it's made out to be this big issue for, you know, for the, the working class when, um, when gas prices go up, but everybody needs to heat their house. And so especially lower income people, feel the burden of that disproportionately, whereas it's a little bit harder to tease out the distributional costs of um, rises in the price of petrol. We get into all of that with Julio, but just to sort of, just to really emphasize that contrast here about who is affected by these price rises and then how th those calculations then inform policy decisions. Um, 
yeah, there's no, there's no like real right answer here. It's a, it's a pretty ongoing debate and it's good to see it being taken seriously, honestly. Yeah. And, and there haven't been any concrete decisions made yet. So this is just kind of the update at this point, but you can see that people are kind of considering pulling out all the stops, you know, all of a sudden there is talk about bremsen. Uh, so in the meantime, I guess our message to all you living in Germany out there is keep those heaters on. Heizung auf zero. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's cut to Julio talking about the transportation costs in the Spritpreisbremse. All right, on to Julio. Hey everyone, welcome to Spaßbremse and welcome back to Giulio Mattioli, who is a sustainable transport researcher at TU Dortmund, coming back on the podcast. So welcome back, Giulio, to Spaßbremse. Yeah, thank you. Uh, glad to be back. Thanks for having me again. So soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's a, it's a great time um, because Giulio kindly came on last year to talk all things climate and transportation in Germany. And now we've had a, sort of some renewed debates about uh, particularly the cost of transit and, and who bears that and, and how that plays out politically in Germany. So I was thinking, well, there's, there's only one man to talk to about this. We've got to get him back. So very much appreciate you coming back on. And so I think, you know, this is a it's a news story really across all of the world now and um, just kind of surging uh, prices for for gas, um, gas, I mean, in the, uh, the American sense, petrol or, or benzene in Germany. Um, but also, of course, gas, like uh, natural gas to heat your home. But here, talking mostly on the transportation side. So when I say gas, referring to what you put in your car. And, you know, you've had these prices going up um, in the U.S. You know, people have been getting angry about this. In Europe, this has been a big uh, a big political issue. Obviously, a lot of this has to do with the, the geopolitical situation and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But prices were rising anyway um, before that. So there, there's a lot going on here. And... We've seen calls in Germany from, I think, what you could say, some interesting political corners calling for what's uh, known as a Spritpreisbremse, which translates to a, like a break on the price of uh, petrol, uh, not to be confused with a meat price bremse, which was a, uh, a break on the increases of rental costs. Um, I think you have a fairly different political groups supporting each, which we'll get into uh, with some people maybe would accuse them of hypocrisy. So who is calling for this sort of price cap on petrol? What's going on just generally in, the, in political and economic terms? And, and yeah, what, why, why is there this call? And who's calling for it? What's going on? Yeah, well, uh, if we're talking about the political parties, I think pretty much all of them are calling for some measures to uh, make sure that people can afford these costs. They just um, advocate for different measures because I think even the Greens argue that we should help people with the costs of energy more in general, including transport, uh, uh, but they argue for something which they call Energiegeld or Mobilitätsgeld, which would be like giving like the same flat rate for those expensive to all households, regardless of income. And studies show that that would go more to the benefit of lower income groups. Um, whereas a, a cut on the price of fuel, which other parties advocate, would go disproportionately to the benefit of uh, middle higher income groups because they are more likely to own cars and to use cars. So I don't think the SPD has said anything about it because it, you know, it's what they do often. <laughs> it's what makes them win elections sometimes that they just don't, you don't really know where they stand. Uh, I think the Greens have this proposal. Uh, the FDP, which is in government, the Liberals have called for massive cuts to the fuel tax to bring it below to, uh, two euros. And like the, the overall price. And uh, I think the conservative, uh, I'm not sure what the AfD is saying, to be honest. Uh, the far right, I haven't followed. Uh, I think the, the conservatives in opposition, they're trying to outcompete the FDP by saying, oh, like even that rebate, tax rebate, the, 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 what's it called? The tank, 
Tankrabat, Lindner's Tankrabat, which would be like a sort of reimbursement of part of the of the fuel tax. They say even that, even if it's up to 40 cents, which would be much higher than what any other country is doing in Europe, even that is not enough. We need something like uh, strict price controls to avoid that it goes over a certain pressure. I think that's what the previous uh, transport minister, Andreas Scheuer, was calling for yesterday. Yeah, I saw that clip of him. Um, and it's, it's like you said, it's, it's sort of like a competition between the two sort of economically, most economically conservative parties where, like you said, Lindner, yeah, calling for a, calling for a rebate. And he's like, no, there's going to be too much bureaucracy with that. Uh, we don't need a bureaucracy monster, which yeah. I liked. Uh, I like that word that he, he tweeted. Um, and then he's saying, no, 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 we just need an actual, uh, an actual like cap on the price yeah. of fuel. Which, of course, to anyone who, who would think that maybe more conservative parties might be, uh, more ideologically consistent in their, uh, their enforcement of when, when the, when the market rules and when it doesn't. If anyone's followed the debates about rental policies in Germany, they would notice the, um, the incongruity there a little bit. Um, but I think, I think it's maybe, it just all boils down to interest in a way, right? Because, okay, they don't, they don't necessarily have a, an overarching ideological framework for when the state should be involved in politics and economics. It's that a lot of the sort of wealthier people in these parties, maybe for them, rent is income and gas is something that they spend while driving. So the cap, cap your expenses and uh, let, let your income keep rising seems to be the, the overall approach here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in general, People like us, I don't know, academics or people working in think tanks, tanks or intellectuals try or strive towards some kind of consistency, some kind of, you know, overarching framework, you know, like either about, I don't know, the role of the market and the role of the state and some, you know, guiding principles that then you apply to specific cases. But I think, first of all, most people in the public and most political parties for sure, don't work that way. They are much more opportunistic and act based on, you know, certain maximizing certain goals uh, that they have, and that explains, for example, why you know a party like the CDU in Germany, when we're talking about the mid-price premises or the sort of a, a cap on 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 rents in a city like Berlin, they will resort to a certain. Um, kind of argument saying this is ideological, this is against the free market, this is a false solution, that this will result in scarcity. This doesn't take account of how markets really work in the real world and only, you know, utopian leftists think that they can control the market in that way. Uh, but when it comes to, to motor fuel, they, they argue absolutely using the opposite toolkit uh, of arguments and saying, oh, we need solidarity towards the, the left behind and we need to, you know, everyone should be able to have access to a minimum amount in order to be socially included. People are really feeling the burden of this and we need to respond. So that, you know, they're drawing on two uh, sets of arguments that exist out there. Uh, depending on the circumstances. And, and that doesn't make sense if you think of them. Uh, I mean, I think that it makes sense to to reproach them about being inconsistent up to a point, you know, uh, because uh, in one way, of course, they're being inconsistent on that level. But I think they're being consistent in protecting uh, or, uh, you know, vouching for the interests of certain groups. So if you have like middle class groups in mind, middle class groups are not very likely to rent they're more likely to be homeowners, though Germany is a bit special in that respect. And they're also uh, more likely than others to be landlords, especially if you go towards the upper classes. So they would not necessarily benefit it. They might even be damaged by, by, by you know, a, a cap on, the, uh, on rents. But middle classes uh, are more likely to have cars and more likely to, to drive longer distances and so on. So uh, they could do with you know, the state cutting them some slack on, on the price of fuel. They would probably enjoy that. So if you think they have certain group uh, constituency in mind, then it, it, it's absolutely consistent what they're doing. Um, and I prefer to think that, you know, those actors are not just acting randomly. They, they, they act based on some kind of rationality. It's just the rationality based on which they're acting is not the same as the arguments that they are presenting. 
right? They're not arguing we want the, this particular group to benefit because that would, would wouldn't be so accepted or popular. They're acting, they're presenting the, the, the action as striving towards some general principle that everyone would agree with. And I think all parties do that to some extent, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that's, that's a good way to look at it. Like, I think it can be a bit of a political dead end to be like, you're being a hypocrite, you know? Oh, look, you said this, this. And it's like, no, like, like you said, it's, they're consistently supporting who they view as their political constituency and they're finding the arguments to suit the political needs. They're not going to change their political stances based on like a rigid ideology. And, and I think it's, you know, it's okay to point that out sometimes, as you said, to try to criticize it. But if that's, the whole extent of your argument, I think it, it does, uh, it ends up being a bit shallow because they say, yeah, so what? Yeah. My argument, you know, they're, they're like, they're not going to back down just if you call Christian Lindner or Andy Shoya a hypocrite, they're not going to be like, oh, well, you're totally right. I now I need to revise my entire political program. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to, to see like the rift between like some, uh, you know, uh, professional economists who I think like most of them really believe in the free market and in those abstract principles, but they're not in politics, right? For a reason, because uh, there's not a, such a big constituency for such a pure free market program. And then suddenly there's a rift between the FDP, which with which they usually, you know, uh, get along with and them on these questions of fuel tax, because they say, no, you're not applying the market principles in this case. And yeah, but no wonder they never really do when it comes to cars and transport. Uh, but I think it's funny yeah, to, yeah. to see that sort of uh, rift emerging in this in these circumstances. It's like the, the economists, are th they, they can think that they're hyper influential because their arguments suit the party most of the time. And then as soon as they don't, they realize that like, their arguments are being instrumentalized, not that their entire political program is just based on what economists think. I think you see yeah. this quite a bit. So with some academics, they seem a bit let down. They're like, wait, what? I wasn't, my ideas aren't really ruling, ruling the world after all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a, a, a nice, a humbling experience. <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. And so it might be a bit of speculation, but I think it's important to, to talk about this. Like, why has this gained such a political salience in Germany? Because if you look at it, um, some of, I think it might have been something that you posted actually. Um, it was about the relative fuel costs in Germany compared to other European countries, um, especially compared to average income. Gas really isn't that expensive in Germany. Um, I mean, obviously compared to the US, it is, where it's just really, even though people are complaining now, it's outrageously cheap compared to any European country. But why, why has it taken on this like outsized role? I mean, it seems like it's, it's almost like a, like a, a quite coordinated campaign you've seen in the last like three weeks all of a sudden everyone you've just seen signs and posters and on the tv and then you know newspaper op-eds and so on like everyone's talking sprit price brimsel and so where did we get here is it is it that germans drive a lot is it that their cars have gotten so much bigger is it a kind of identity thing I'm, I'm wondering how much there's maybe even a shadow of the yellow vest protests from france from a few years back that they're sort of afraid that they're either honestly afraid of this happening again, or they're sort of instrumentalizing the memory of it to say, we need to avoid a yellow vest in Germany and then therefore get my constituents cheaper gas. Like, what, what, what do you make of this? What's going on? And why is this blown up so much? Yeah, that's such a big question. I, I think there are probably many, many factors. Uh, one of them might be that I think relatively to many other countries, Germans have a relatively high standard of living. And I think you could make the same argument for, for the debate on the meat price premise in a way. Because if you think about it, you know, prices of, of rents in Berlin were not abnormally high for, for, for a European capital, you know, of, of the kind that Berlin is, right? With, with such a, you know, such a nice, um, you know, l very large uh, European capital. They were just sort of converging towards, you know, what the, the, the very high rents are in places like Paris or London or other cities like that. And there's never been such a huge controversy around the affordability of housing in those cities, if I remember. 
that maybe was the fact that you know Berlin has gone from being very cheap to be very expensive in such a short space of time. But I think there's also an assumption that housing should be cheap. You know, renting should be cheap, uh, which you maybe don't have in countries like France or, or, or the UK, where most people own, and for a reason, which renting isn't cheap, you know, uh, and everybody knows that renting isn't cheap. So I think maybe there's just some being used to uh, being able to afford things without having to spend too much of your income on it. And that applies to some extent to, to, to fuel as well, because, uh, yeah, there have been statistics being posted that Germany has, relative to income, one of the lowest uh, prices of fuel per liter in Europe. Uh, and certainly, um, I, I was looking at the comparison with Italy, it, the, the ratio was like 50% more in Italy, uh, if, you, if you make it relative to income. And there's not such a huge movement for cutting the fuel price at the moment in Italy, even though they are considering fuel taxes, but it's less less present on the news somehow. And then certainly, yeah, Germany has a higher motorization rate. Uh, for the past few years, uh, vehicles sold in Germany have been the least fuel efficient in in the whole of Europe. I mean, not, uh, maybe there's one or two small countries such as Luxembourg and and East Estonia, uh, where, where where it's even worse. But among the large countries, um, they they're the ones who buy the largest and most powerful and therefore most gas guzzling vehicles, or at least that's been the case for the last few years. Um, which is ironic, which sort of shows that, you know, like the price of fuel was probably not on the top of everyone's mind for, for the past few years. Um, so these factors may uh, play a role as well. I think there's also maybe a question of the sort of coalition that is in power at the moment. So you have the FDP, which would, as we see, they would gladly, you know, give massive tax cuts on the, on fuel right away. And then you have the Greens who have committed to increasing the price of fuel over a number of years for climate change. So there is a tension there that maybe in other countries, um, you know, just uh, there, there's less of a tension there in the government coalition. They just they just all agree on a certain on a certain approach um, that and that makes it less visible, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's I think you make a good point there that a lot of it has to do with sort of probably rates of change, but especially as they, as those pertain to sort of your perception of sort of what your, uh, what you can expect as like a citizen of a certain country, right? Whereas like, I know, I know with a lot of the housing campaigns, um, you know, you mentioned like London or Paris, but I know they explicitly would say like in some of their, their literature, well, look what happened to London and Paris, like ordinary people or like artists or something, you know, they, they can't afford to live there. So we don't want to become like them. And it was like, this is, but you feel, you know, Berlin, like you said, sort of converging, like feel like almost gravitationally getting more expensive, like the other European capitals. And so people are like, no, like, you know, I, I have a right to like stay here and we're going to sort of protect what I view as, you know, my, like my right or my way of life, which I, you know, I think there's good arguments for that in terms of people, you know, ordinary people being able to live in a big city and not, not just having them be playgrounds for wealthy people. But I think there is a similar logic. In terms of what maybe the, the average German car driver feels entitled to. Like, well, no, I'm not like, I'm not from a developing country. I'm not going to get a little tiny car or a motorbike or something. Like we have, we're in Germany. Like I get my big, you know, G class and, and drive around. Like that's, that's my, that's my right. And so when the things get expensive, it's not, it's not always an objective problem, but it's like, it's how it's perceived. And I think that perception of economic interest becomes really crucial in any of these discussions. Related to that, I, I know you had actually done yourself some research about how the burden of this actually breaks down across um, across different income groups. I think this also relates to it. Like who who really feels the pinch? Who, who actually even owns a car in Germany? Because like, I don't know if you own a car. I, I, I don't drive. So like this, it all feels very, all, all feels a bit abstract. Like I don't want, I don't want people to not be able to afford getting to work. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who ride their bike or take mass transit. So like what, who's affected here? Yeah. So I, I spent a number of years just looking into this question of who, who are those people about whom we, we hear a lot, you know, those people with cars who struggle to afford the costs of running a vehicle. Uh, Cause you hear about them a lot. 
And my main interest was uh, to look at this problem as a sort of hindrance to, to climate policy, because if you want to do climate policies, you want, you know, increasing the costs of, of car use is definitely one of the main policy instruments uh, that everyone agrees we should use. But at the same time, there's always the problem, no, but some people uh, are, are very reliant on cars and, and, and would struggle to, to meet those costs. And so I was interested to see who these people are, how many of them there are, where they live, and and how these patterns of vulnerability are. And uh, we did in particular some work about the UK, where we sort of tried and apply some indicators that exist in, in, in the domestic energy field, uh, which is called energy poverty. And there's an indicator in, in, in the UK, which is called low income, high cost. Basically looks at who are those people with income below a certain level and, and costs uh, uh, for domestic energy above a certain threshold. And I sort of tried and adapted that to, to transport. And we found that uh, roughly 9% of the UK population is in that group. And you have another 10% who are in the low-income, low-cost group, which means that they're low-income, but they don't spend as much on cars. For most of them, it's because they don't have one. So like the situation among uh, low-income people, it's it's interesting, but it's also complex in that roughly half of them uh, would not be, uh, do not struggle with the cost of cars because they don't have one. And they would not struggle with, uh, you know, fuel price increases because they don't spend on fuel and they would not benefit from a fuel tax cut because they don't spend on fuel but the other half they spend quite a lot on it so it's very bimodal e- either you spend very little or, or, or nothing or you or if you do you, you you tend to spend quite a lot so if you decide on a low income to own and use a car it's probably because you need it and probably the the reasons why you need it which is mostly getting to work and back it's not something that you can cut from one day to the other. Uh, so they're not just spending lots on it. They're, they also have what economists call a low elasticity, um, price elasticity of, of, of demand, in that if you increase prices, they tend to, uh, you know, uh, not to reduce their driving, they just tend to pay more and to cut on other expenses. Uh, and those other expenses can be quite important. They can be, you know, domestic energy, they can be fuel, uh, food or, or things like that. Uh, so there is certainly a group, but I, I, I wanted to quantify it to say, you know, it's it's 9%, say, in the UK, uh, and they tend to live more in this kind of area. They tend to be more in this uh, in this sort of social groups. Uh, for example, they their, their social profile is interesting in that they're not the poorest of the poor. They, they're like poor, but they, they're more likely to be working. They're more likely to maybe have a mortgage, so not to be renting. Uh, so they're like almost on the edges of social exclusion, you know, like uh, like the working poor, perhaps. They're not the kind of poor who doesn't work, is unemployed, doesn't benefit, right? And, may, and maybe lives in social housing, in, in a place where they can go around with public transport. It's more like almost the aspirational poor who, are, you know, they have a low income, they're precarious, but they have a car, they're trying to, to, to buy a whole house, they're maybe in debt, uh, and things like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm caricaturizing a little bit here, but it's a different segment uh, uh, yeah. of the poor. And, and, well, it's interesting. It's interesting how like value, like social value, is kind of constructed of these different groups. Right? If there's two different groups of fairly low income people, the one is like sort of like you said, the aspirational, like trying to become a homeowner. The other is you know like being stereotypical here in, in your in your groups, but like one is maybe more urban dwelling, like. The, whose interests then are like perceived as politically salient, right? Like you don't have conservative politicians going on the TV and saying like, there are the low income people, they are paying way too much to ride the U-Bahn to work. Like this is an outrage. It's hurting the common German, right? You, you never, you almost never see that. But as soon as it's the car, it's like, it becomes a more sympathetic thing. Cause it's like, this person is sort of trying to become your like, classical FDP constituent in a way. And it's like, I think it's, it's a kind of instrumentalized, but also B it's like who, who we think is valuable. Like I would love to see, I would love to see protests every time they raise the cost of riding on public transit in Berlin or other cities, for example, because like, I know that puts a big squeeze on a lot of people. Um, and then you just, it, it doesn't acquire the same political 
salience and importance in the debate. I find it uh, a bit bizarre. Yeah, definitely. De uh, there's definitely an undertone of uh, deserving versus undeserving poor in there. I think, but and it's it, and it, but if you come from really from an equity perspective, whereby you know we should really care about what happens to to to, to the most left behind, then the the sort of costs that you would really worry about are food costs and domestic energy costs, public transport costs. Because uh, those increases in those kind of prices are really, really regressive. So they hurt the poor the most. Car costs are a little bit in between in that. If you look at the average for the, for the poor, it's not as different. Uh, it's perhaps even lower than other income bands. But that sort of average is deceiving in that you have half of them spending zero and, and the other half of them spending lots. So um, you, you need to a bit to go and look for, for that group to find it. Uh, and, and and yeah, it's a good question why car costs then then get much more attention, and I find it like pretty pretty annoying that it that it does, and to some extent it's it's instrumentalized uh, for sure, and as you say, and that's, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to to, to do this work was uh, precisely to sort of like counter this instrumentalization because I I had come across work, for example, by uh, do you know something called the Royal Automobile Club in 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 uh, in UK? It's like yeah, the equivalent yeah, of the ADAC uh, in 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 Germany, so the big motoring association, like like AAA in America, I think. Right? Could be, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. this motoring association that, like for convenience, most motorists subscribe to, but they also sort of act like a lobbying as a lobbying group. Uh, and they had done some really, really poor research, quote-unquote, where they claimed that 80% of the UK population was transport poor, uh, 80. And that was everyone in, in a, that was everyone except the bottom income quintile, right? So but that, the, the absurd conclusion from that was that everyone in the UK was either poor or transport poor, right? This is complete nonsense. But they were using those figures to 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 uh, you know advocate for a fuel tax, uh, fuel duty freeze, as they call it in 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 the UK, and they successfully did that. But I just thought, you know, if I do it in a in a, in a more rigorous way, I mean, it has some scientific value, of course, but it also helps countering those claims that you know eighty percent of people, uh, you know, are are really really vulnerable to fuel price increases, and it was more like. No, it's it's more like nine percent. You know, we, we we should worry about, but it's not such a such a big problem as it's made to be. Sometimes I was going to say, I don't know if I have to offer my sympathies to the the family dropping off their three kids at the fifty thousand pound a year private school in a giant BMW SUV, who apparently are transit poor. Who knew? Yeah, yeah, that was a bit shameless. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now that's that's really interesting. I think I, I enjoyed reading that research because yeah, it's it's very important because you're like, well, who who are we talking about? Because all of a sudden, every time it comes to car costs, and I think you see this in so many countries, all of a sudden the conservatives are they're speaking for the little man and they're they're the voice of the the left behind and the working class, and like all of a sudden you have these parties, you know, and if you look at the actual the actual data about who votes for them, uh, not a lot of working class or poor people are voting for say the FDP. Um, and then all of a sudden they're the, they're sticking up for the little guy and you're like, wait, what, what's going on here? Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's a mix of, like, like we said, uh, sort of who's, who's constructed as like deserving and undeserving and also just purely kind of cynically using these narratives. And so I'm, I'm curious to like going, going beyond the sort of like two most, uh, conservative proposals that either being a, a rebate on the taxes, uh, or, or just capping the price. Um, you mentioned the Greens, like an overall kind of energy credit. Um, have there been any other policy responses? Like we mentioned, you know, maybe making transit more affordable or, or also, I would hope, and this is probably something that frustrates you in your research, but is there any kind of more long-term thinking about this? Cause it seems like we, we wind up in these problems where fuel is relatively cheap. Everybody buys a bigger car and the, they build more highways. People live farther away. We talked about this. I think. Last time you described it as an iron law that like people sort of choose a, a fixed amount of minutes away from work, not a fixed distance. So the better the, the road infrastructure gets, people just live farther away in the suburbs. And so and then it's like we don't think about this. We keep building out. We keep building the sprawl. We keep getting bigger cars. 
um, you know, I know, like you said, Germany, like has been bigger and bigger vehicles and all these SUVs. And then all of a sudden, the consequences of those actions come home uh, and gas does get expensive. It does maybe people start to feel the pinch. And now it's like, oh, all we can rethink is the price of the gas you're putting in your car. We can't rethink all the reasons that this is a problem in the first place. Like, are there any parties calling for something a bit more comprehensive? Um, or what are, what are other proposals on the table that are going to go beyond just the sort of immediate crisis and then everyone goes back to buying, you know, their G classes and, and guzzling gas all the time? Yeah, that's one of the frustrating things about this topic that everything is so short term and doing it in emergency mode. And just anecdotally, I, I remember when I when I applied for funding for my project about vulnerability to fuel price increases, it was around 2014. So prices, fuel prices had been high, oil prices had been high for a long time. There was sort of plateauing at that. And then so, uh, pretty soon after I got the funding, the, the oil price crashed and the fuel price crashed. And I got a lot of pushback along the lines of, yeah, but why are you researching this? You know, like fuel prices are, are crashing and, and fuel fuel is cheap now. And I was like, I mean, it's probably going to spike again, you know, relatively soon. How, how would you know? Because the old market is so complex that no one has really any idea of, of how things develop, you know. We, we've just seen it, you know, you, you've got a war and then suddenly there are geopolitical factors and then and then fuel price spikes up. Um but there well, is... and it also, I mean, even over the course of a week, right? Like, it, I think it went up to like a oil went up to like I don't know, 127 or something a barrel, and everybody, oh my god, this is a crisis, this is unprecedented, and now it's back below 100, which yeah. is it's still like a, a bit. I mean, it's it's a lot of money, but um, it's not unprecedented. And now it's like the crisis discourse is still up at the top, yeah. as if it's you know 150 a barrel, yeah. and now it's actually kind of coming back down to a little more reasonable level. But we're all still talking such fevered about it, so it's like. Yeah, yeah, if you're not looking a bit more long term, what you, you're just chasing the news constantly. Definitely, yeah. And if you think back about two years ago when Corona started, then there was like a sort of sudden crash in the price of oil, which went to zero or something for a week or so. And, and then I remember there were opeds about you know the ear, the new era of cheap oil and whatever. Obviously, it looks ridiculous now. Uh, I think we we have a very so I think taking a step back. Like oil is getting, as far as I understand, the price of oil and the price of fuel as a result are getting more and more spiky than they were like a couple of decades ago. They're, they're much more, there are much bigger fluctuations, but the overall trend is towards uh, get it getting uh, more expensive. So we will keep having big fluctuations, but it, 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 it won't get cheaper as it, as, as it was like, say, in the 80s. Um, and so we should definitely have, you know, a longer term strategy. And, and I think, for example, do, do, last year during the German electoral campaign, there were plans of gradually incre increasing the, 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 the CO2 tax. And, uh, but even those <laughs> resulted in calls for a Spritpreisbremse on the part of uh, some in the FDP and I think even some in the SPD and even some in the Linke. So that's how much, you know, even if you're trying to say, okay, let's increase it a few cents over the next few years, you do get that sort of reactions, you know, like political actors trying to capitalize on an issue that is perceived as very, very um, polarizing and, and, and so on. And so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of long-term thinking about these things in things like, you know, reports, uh, uh, research um, and and perhaps even uh, party policy documents, but then in in the practice of day to day politics, it's 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 much more uh, short termist and, and trying to you know jump on 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 any any bandwagon. Uh, and we have elections next week in or this week in Germany, so I think that explains a lot of going back to your first question, a lot of why why um, we we've seen that debate. With the, the CDU and the FTP kind of trying to outflank each other. I think that the CDU is not used to not being in government at the federal level. So they're like, they're, they're, uh, in opposition. You see that their rhetoric really pick up quite a bit. And yeah, it's, uh, it, it just feels a bit weird. Like, you're like, well, well, why didn't we, maybe, maybe we should have thought about the fact that fuel could get expensive, uh, before everyone decided to get a giant SUV. Yeah. 
And that's that there's definitely a contrast there in the different arguments that I use because when you try to question SUVs, typically one of the counter arguments and typically from people who would be in that area, say like F FDP or CDU is but that's consumer preferences, right? If consumers prefer those vehicles, those large vehicles, they must have some good reason. And who are you to tell them that they they shouldn't use them, right? Uh, you know, if we're seeing an SUV boom, it's because consumer love them and the consumer is sovereign. And you know, yeah, who are you to be paternalist and tell them what they should or should not buy? Uh, but then later on, when you know those vehicles are consuming a whole lot of more uh, fuel than, than 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 a smaller vehicle would, then suddenly the re- re- rhetoric shifts to, oh, no, we must p- almost protect those consumers from the consequences of their own choices, you know, and now that they have to spend fortunes on fuel, the state needs to help them. So it's a weird mix, you know, be- between the consumer it's being, you know. Very reaping, reaping and sowing kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's like... like- the consumer is responsible up to a point, but then, then we need to help him or her. Yeah, it's like, oh, I want to, I, I want to install single pane windows in my house. I, I like how they look better. And then, you know, the, I'm freezing. The price of natural gas spikes, and I'm freezing. And I'm like, wait, well, the government saved me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you would assume that it's the state's responsibility to make sure, you know, that mobility is affordable then you could also argue that the state should make sure that vehicles are, don't keep getting bigger and bigger and, and, and even more wasteful. You know, you could you could make that argument. Uh, but that, that would be a, a, a anathema to those actors, I suppose. Yeah, it's uh, using the state for freedom, freedom where you want it and, and the state where you don't, as we started out saying. Yeah, so uh, well, hopefully, I don't know, it just... Uh, seems like a very bizarre a bizarre political moment i don't have any like super uh, super hopeful thoughts on it other than that i i would really hope that maybe at some point we could try to convince people that driving giant death machines around the street that uh, destroy the environment uh, could stop but that's not certainly not the direction that the consumer habits are going in so we'll see what happens there is there anything anything else you've been working on in terms of German climate and transportation policy or any anything notable that the coalition's done since last time we we spoke? I think it was in December or so. It's just uh, with all the the geopolitical situation, I feel like everything climate related, you know, everyone was I think rightly talking about climate very seriously and then as soon as there's another more important crisis at hand, all of a sudden it's like the, the environment, wait, what's that? You know, it's <laughs> It's a. Uh, it's only about the the geopolitics and then the the hit to the pocketbook of fossil fuel prices. But so any anything else positive going on or or negative? Just in, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a good point how the discourse shifted, and I think it's pretty instructive to think about EVs. You know, because in normal times, like a couple of months ago, there's a lot of lot of. I mean, maybe it's my bubble, but <laughs> there's a lot of positivity around EVs and if you heard a lot of the discourse it was my you know sales are booming it's almost as if there were so many EVs on the road already which is not the case I mean sales are booming but uh, you know the, the just the time that it takes for for, for the fleet to for turnover is such that there are still a tiny minority of vehicles on the road um, yeah, it's not like the stock it's not like everyone gets a new car every single year so exactly. even if it's what is it like 20 is it like 20 percent of sales something or? like that yeah right but that doesn't mean obviously that 20 percent of vehicles on the road become evs instantly right? no it's more like one percent or or less um and um and i think we we, we realize this now because as soon as like fuel prices have gone up and has anyone talked about the implications for evs you know they're completely absent from the debate now. No one's saying, you know, higher fuel prices are an incentive for people to buy EVs or or, or, or anything like, or we should we should uh, increase subsidies to EV purchase. No, no, no one's even mentioning that. They're completely absent from the conversation now, which I think is is instructive. But coming back to to your question, uh, another thing that they've done, and it was shortly before the war, I think, or around the same time, it's like they increased the Pendlerpauschale, so the commuter tax rebate, uh, which is something that sustainable transport experts widely condemn as, you know, damaging for the environment. 
because uh, it incentivizes people to make longer commutes to go and live further yeah. further away from the jobs uh, for people not in germany right when you like fill out your tax return like you, you type in like how far away you live from work and how many times a year you like commute there and then if it's over a certain distance you get like you get like a rebate so it's like then they they increase that so like you said it incentivizes living farther away rather than the thing all the researchers are saying which is like well we need density and mass transit and it's like nope we're going to incentivize the exact opposite exactly and it's also unequitable in that for various reasons it goes uh much more to the benefits of middle income and higher income groups than lower income groups uh for various reasons because uh you know they drive shorter distances they tend to live closer to work they have shorter commutes uh they're less likely to use cars even though the pendulum goes towards any any mode but the, the main thing is that it's a tax rebate so uh if, if you're on a, on a low income chances are that you're not paying taxes or that you're paying little taxes so the maximum amount of the rebate is very low whereas if you're rich and you're paying a lot of taxes you will get a, a much bigger rebate uh, and that makes it very inequitable and uh, and you know um, transport experts argue for a different model called again like the sort of mobilitets get where everyone would sort of get some uh, some amount of money to 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 cover their commute uh, and, and that would benefit uh, lower income groups more but the FDP was and I think the SPD as well pushed for increasing the the, the pendlerpauschale and the greens who actually had in their program to uh, overhaul the whole pendlerpauschale system and certainly not to increase it uh, they managed to re- to to make sure that it's increased but not by as much as the FDP wanted it and to put like some small print in there saying that by the end of the legislature letter in 2026 that they will change the whole system into something more sustainable but that's you know a long time and very aspirational and so on so uh yeah that was the main thing that happened but it's it's going in into the same direction so more subsidies for car use yeah it's uh, all this all this hope about oh we're gonna have an ecological government now with the greens you know having an important role it's uh we talked on an earlier episode about um, you know, the, some of the, the foreign policy aspects of this and how it seems like every party has sort of reversed their initial position with the SPD on the foreign policy stuff and the FDP not willing to be able to spend so much money on defense and the Greens getting rid of some of their environmental programs. So, yeah, it's a, it's not a not a great outlook overall. I mean, I guess I would count myself as someone who who didn't get overly excited about the AMPL even when they released some of their coalition agreement and I was wow this is going to be so great it's like yeah I'll, I'll believe it when I see it um things events have a way of uh sort of overriding lofty political goals and I think just a few months into the government that's basically exactly what we've seen well um all right I think that I think that about covers all the all the updates uh, not not a lot of good news to report unfortunately but uh we'll, we'll definitely keep everybody updated on this topic um so yeah Julio thanks so much for coming back on uh Really, really great information and great, great update on this stuff. Uh, where can people find your work uh, or keep updated on what you're thinking about? I'm on the internet, as everyone else. <laughs> Just, I've got, I've got pages. If you Google my name, you, you probably find me, okay. and not one of the many other Giulio Mattioli that exist in Italy. Okay, well, make sure we link to the right one. You don't want to get the, you don't want to get the knockoff version. You want the authentic one here. Uh, and then, yeah, Julia is also a great follow on Twitter for lots of. Lots of good, uh, a nice mix of charts and memes, I would say. So you can get your, you can get your graphs and your information and, and also some humor about, uh, these political things we talked about. Um, so yeah, definitely recommend that. We'll, we'll link to everything. So yeah, Julia, thanks again for coming on. We'll see, uh, we'll definitely see you soon. I hope. Thank you. Thanks so much to Julia for coming on again. It's always a pleasure to talk to someone who, or have Ted talk to someone who I feel like I read all of his tweets. I'm always uh, looking at the graphs that Julio's posting. <laughs> yeah. We'll link to, <laughs> we'll definitely link updated. to his Twitter. He's got, he's got the very strong graph game. Yeah. Um, and Julio, obviously speaking about the transport side of things, it did get me all curious about this so-called Vende uh, or Mobilitätswende, the uh, transport or mobility transition that uh, the Germans are always trotting out. They purport to 
It's always a Venda really... or a Bremza. They're, they're either, it's... you know, yeah. they're everything. They're... Choose your fighter, you got, Venda you got a or Bremza. Bremza. You got a Titan Venda. You got a meat price Bremza. You've got a Mobility Venda. <laughs> like every, every policy is either like pump the brakes or a full revolution. Like let's, let's yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No in between. Um, and I guess this is kind of a more local level thing that I think we should maybe look into uh, for Berlin yeah, especially with the because Esbon privatization and all that. There's a lot to talk yeah, about. So we should do that. There's that and also, you know, it takes them like three years to build one protected bike lane and you're kind of like, hmm, this is that Venda on high speed you're talking about. Yeah, definitely yeah. a lot more a lot more to discuss on the, the transportation side of things. Um yeah, I think and, and you kinda have to do it at the local level to like make it make any sense like concretely. Yeah. Because sometimes the the sort of abstract policies don't make as much sense, but I think, yeah, Julio did a great job of kind of kind of outlining this political debate, especially on the cost side of things, and and how that's basically just distorted politically, pretty cynically, I think. Right. Um, and yeah, and one thing that uh, was actually talking to Julio after we stopped recording, which I thought was an important point, I just wanted to bring up. Um, there's this term always that's used, the Spaltung der Gesellschaft, uh, like the sort of separation of society, like social fractures. And so they're always saying in Germany, like, oh, we need to avoid this. Like, we can't do these divisive policies that would create, you know, the, the Spaltung. And Giulio, being from Italy, he was just like, well, why, why is Germany so convinced that this hasn't already happened yet? He's like, society is already divided. You know, like, if we have higher gas prices or a vaccine mandate, like, that's not going to be what fractures German society. Like, you already have a lot of people living in poverty and socially excluded. And, like, he was saying, you know, that's sort of taken more for granted in Italy. And I think it's pretty similar in the U.S. People are just like, yeah, it's like, it's a very divisive place. Like, there's just these conflicts. And it's like, the conflicts are there in Germany as well, but it seems like they don't want to ever admit them. And it sort of, it acts as a, could say a bremse on some of these, uh, (laughs) these political debates. Because it, it, everyone's so worried, like it's sort of this weird, like scare tactic. Like, oh no, we can't, we can't de- separate society. We can't divide society. And sort of, instead of looking for for things you can actually do, it's like this weird sort of concern trolling about something that's basically already happened. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that uh, they act like they're not going to touch some sort of third rail by. <laughs> By basically just letting like these social problems like fester rather fester, than addressing yeah. them, yeah, and so it's like it's like the the separation gets worse the like less you address it, and I think uh, that's we're sort of we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of long term policy neglect kind of come home to roost here in both of these in both of these sectors, you know whether that's uh, not developing new infrastructure to not use Russian natural gas in the energy sector or whether that's you know not uh, encouraging more public transit and less adoption of massive gas guzzling suvs in the transportation sector and you're just seeing these sort of like long-term errors and problems now just hit everybody in the face and now they're scrambling scrambling. yeah and this is this is what happens if you uh if you don't think about what you're doing but probably wraps it up with us huh anything else michelle i think so i think that's it okay well thanks so much to julio uh, for coming on again always great to talk to him and we will see you next time for grenzen Nummer zwei on the patreon looking forward to it cheers cheers thanks everybody Hey, it's Isaac again. That was your semi-weekly episode of Spaß Bremse. Thank you so much for listening. And just a reminder to please, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast wherever you are listening and give us a review or share with your friends too, if you feel like it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Spaßbremse underscore pod, where you can tweet us all your comments and complaints. That's at S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore P-O-D. And as Michelle and Ted said at the beginning of this episode, we're also now on Patreon. So if you are able, your support over there would be greatly appreciated too. You can find us there at www.patreon.com slash If you weren't paying attention, that's totally okay. All this info is also in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and talk to you next time. Tschüss.